Welcome to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. Mosaic Church seeks to engage the modern age with the historic Christian faith. If you don't have a home church, please don't use this podcast as a substitute for being a member of a local community of faith. Whether you call Mosaic your home or not, we hope that you find this sermon convicting and encouraging in your walk with Jesus. Here's our lead pastor, Pastor Greg Brown, with this week's sermon. My name is Greg Brown. I'm the, the lead pastor here, if you don't know me. Um, I, uh, it is a pleasure and an honor, as always, to address the people of God with the Word of God. That's uh, a, a big deal to me. It's something I don't take lightly. Uh, and I think it's an amazing thing that uh, it's, a, it's a privilege that I get to uh, open the Word of God and speak to you about what God has said. As sort of a core to who Mosaic is, uh, as a church, uh, we believe this is the inspired, inerrant Word of God, and it is the pastor's job on a Sunday morning to come up and to declare what God has said. It shouldn't be my opinions about what God has said. It should simply be an exposition of what is there in the text, and that's sort of core value for us. It's who we are as a people. Something that, uh, that you should know about me other than my uh, sort of seriousness around the, uh, the word of God is that uh, I am a problem solver by nature, all right? I am a problem solver by nature. There is something incredibly satisfying about solving a difficult problem. Any of you guys problem solvers, you like doing that kind of stuff? Like a lot of the guys probably raise their hand there, right? Like... You know when your wife says, hey, I have a problem, and all she wants to do is think about it, or talk about it, and you're like, I'm going to solve your problem for you. Yeah, you, you know how it is. Um, so some of you know how, what I'm talking about. I tell you what, I am, I am a problem solver by nature. So uh, my day job, I am a software engineer, and I love just getting into the code and solving interesting problems. Uh, recently, there was a job survey at, uh, where I work, and, and it asked, what part of your job gives you energy? And I said, solving interesting problems that make a lasting impact. That's, that's, that's what I love about my job. And ultimately, <laughs> I think it's a little selfish, maybe. I, I like knowing something that few people or maybe no one else actually knew before me. Because why would they need me to solve the problem if there was already a solution for it, right? I like the idea of knowing something that other people don't. Um, and it's, it's just, it's fun, I like having that sort of knowledge, but then I do like to share it, right? But I like being the first one to it. It's fun to discover new stuff. And while knowing the solution to a problem or a little-known fact about our world maybe is a sweet thing, it is far sweeter to know another person deeply, to be the trustee of that person's true self. Is, is an incredibly satisfying thing for us as human beings. It's something that is deeply built into us. We want to know other people and know them well. And we like to think that we are, like, we are the, the treasurer of that knowledge, of that deep relationship. In fact, knowing others and being known by others is of indescribable value. I watched a TED Talk recently uh, that said that uh, millennials' deepest desires get this, are fame and fortune. Pretty standard stuff for human beings in general, I'd say. But like, seriously, they were, they were saying that like the, the one goal I have in my life is to be rich and famous. That's what they wanted when they were surveyed. And you'd think that maybe that, like, that's the built-in good stuff of human life, but that's not true. In fact, they've proven it. 
Uh, there was a survey of over 700 men from the 1930s to today. And these people are in their 80s now. And they have surveyed them every, day, every year and asked them, how are they feeling? What sort of happiness level do they experience in their lives? And it wasn't riches, it wasn't fame, it was relationships that made people the happiest. In fact, there are 70 people still living that are in this survey, and every single one of them has said, if I have people in my life who love me and care for me that I know and they know me, then I'm going to be okay. Even in the midst of pain, I don't experience that pain as deeply as someone who is alone, someone who doesn't know the deep things about someone else. See, the, the sermon today isn't meant to help you to solve all of your life's problems in 10 easy steps. That's not the kind of preacher that I am. You will probably never hear me say something like that, unless it's tongue-in-cheek. I, I do like to be a little tongue-in-cheek sometimes. But uh, for real, though, I, I'm, I'm not going to give you that sort of a sermon. And I'll be honest, it's not even going to be an expositional and biblical sermon that calls you to clear action, as in go do. This sermon is something uh, I hope that's better. It's about who Jesus is. And obviously that will call you to action. It will call you to change in light of that. But I just want you to bask for a moment in who Jesus is. I want you to know your God. And so today uh, we're going to dive into uh, a section of scripture that is kind of descriptive See, the Bible has some prescriptive sections, things like the epistles, where we, get, we, we learn things in order to apply them. Hey, this is what you should do. In fact, last week we saw that Mark was using a rhetorical device between the disciples and Bartimaeus, how they approached Jesus to teach us how to do something, how to approach Christ. But the Bible is also filled with passages, and I'd say probably more passages that simply tell us about our God and what he has done. And so today we need to remember this. We need to remember that we need to know who God is. In fact, John Calvin argued that we can never truly know ourselves unless we know God. We need to see the contrast. You might think yourself one way, but when you see God, when you see that one sort of like objective, unchanging truth of who God is, when you see his righteousness, his holiness, his love, his mercy, and you look at yourself, you go, oh, now I see who I truly am. In fact, God teaches us through all sorts of, of different contrasts here, and we're going to continue uh, last week's uh, sort of uh, theme and, and look at contrast again today in Mark chapter 11. Again, we're going to be in Mark chapter 11, uh, verse 1 through 11 uh, is where we're going to be today if you want to start tapping over there, or uh, some of you have physical Bibles on, you can flip there too. But this is a, a passage that tells us something deep about Jesus. That's God the Son. It doesn't give us a pre clear prescriptive action to take, even via context but it's simply a narrative story that tells us something about our king. And so today is just, the pressure's off. If you came today expecting to hear a sermon to that's going to tell you, hey, like complete these 10 steps or call you to some sort of clear action, I, I don't want to do that today. I just want, to, want you to hear who Jesus is and determine what that looks like for you as you move forward. Look, I'm not trying to be ultra liberal or anything like that. I'll, I'll be happy to tell you what to do when the scriptures get there. But this moment is for you to know who Jesus is. So let's, 
read this passage. You can stand with me as we, as we read. It's, uh, again, Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. We stand to revere the word of God, which speaks to us authoritatively and perfectly. It says this, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If someone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied to a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? They told, him, told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others leafy branches uh, that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming of the kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And we had, when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's go to him in prayer one more time. Lord God, I just pray that you would bless this word to your people today, that, Lord, we might truly know you. And, Lord, let us not be merely hearers of the word. Let us be doers. But, Lord, help us to do in light of who you are. I pray, Lord God, that today you would reveal yourself to us, that, Lord, we would know you more and more and find you more beautiful than we did yesterday. May your Holy Spirit operate on our hearts and souls, that, Lord, we might truly enjoy the fellowship we have with you. We thank you, Lord, for this. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. You guys can have a seat. So in two weeks, we are going to have our Easter service. Uh, little plug for Easter service, invite your friends. We're having it at Pole Green Historic Church, uh, and it will be at 10 a.m., not 10.30, so we can all get out a little bit early. I mean, obviously, we're going to need some help breaking down, so maybe not all that early, but hopefully uh, we'll get out of there just a little bit earlier so that we can go spend some time with our families. But invite some people out. We're hoping to get some people from the community to come and just participate in Easter service with us. We don't even care if they, if they stick to the church, if you will. I want them to hear the gospel. And so these people who often don't come to church at any point in the year, except for maybe a couple of, quote, holy days, are going to hopefully come to the service and hear the gospel for perhaps the first time. And so we, we're hopeful that people are going to come and hear about Jesus Christ, and maybe they haven't before. Or maybe they have heard about Jesus before, but God is going to ordain that particular day at that particular time to save their souls. We know that he can do this. So invite some people out. And we're going to preach the gospel. We're going to sing about what Jesus has done, and uh, it's, it's going to be good. Um, but next week, uh, next week is Palm Sunday. And you're like, well, why didn't you just wait a, a week for this, uh, for this passage here, Greg? Uh, well, to be honest with you, uh, I, th I thought about it, and it didn't feel right. I don't know why. Uh, that's not something super spiritual. Uh, I just I thought about it for a little while, and I was like, no, I think we need to just plow ahead on this. I want to I get to this, and I want to talk about who Jesus is in light of this passage. 
So today, I, I really just wanted to look at this passage in, in that light of contrast again. And this passage, uh, this sermon is going to be a little bit different uh, from my average, okay? Usually, if, you're, if you've been paying attention, I like going verse by verse through a passage. I read each passage, things like that. I'm going to do less of that today. I think this is a relatively simple passage. I hope that uh, what I say here is, is pretty simple uh, and easy to understand because I think this passage is easy to understand. It's pretty face value here. Like, this is what happened. But I hope that we can dive in a little bit and see what had to happen in order for this to happen. Um, so we're going to see some contrast today between the power of God and the humility of God. Right? So Jesus, humble but powerful. And so hopefully... Uh, we can see that, but in this first part of the, uh, of the passage, and I will uh, read a couple of sections as we go along, it says, now when they drew near to uh, Jerusalem to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and uh, we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt and tied it at a door uh, in the street, and they untied it. And some people standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told him uh, that what Jesus had said, and they let him go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. So this is, this is an interesting little passage, I think. At first brush, you might think this is pretty mundane, perhaps, but... I would argue this is far, far deeper. The first thing that we see here is that Jesus knew the cult was there. This is pretty simple stuff, okay? Like, I'm not, I'm, this is, I'm doing, not doing rocket science today, all right? This isn't some sort of deep theological thing. I just want you to notice something. Jesus knew that the cult was there. Scholars debate the relationship between Jesus' divine and human natures in his earthly ministry. Like we affirm that Jesus is fully God and fully man, two natures in one person, but whether he relied fully upon the Holy Spirit for his miracles or if he chose to at times tap into his divine nature is not very clear from scripture. Though, to be honest, I, th I think in my mind, I lean more toward Jesus relied upon the Holy Spirit in his humanity. I say this because uh, it, we see this, I believe it's in Colossians. It says, not counting equality of God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself, right? And so just like we have the Holy Spirit, Jesus also had the Holy Spirit, perhaps in much greater measure though. And so we see that Jesus has this ability to see that there is a cult tied up somewhere where he's never been. He says, hey, there's a cult over here and you're going to need, need to go uh, get that. And we see that he's tapping into something that is not quite a, a normal human attribute. It's some sort of way that he's knowing what's going on. It's almost a, a supernatural power. It is a supernatural power. And so we see that there's this juxtaposition between Jesus, the man, and Jesus doing these huge, impressive miracles, even knowing the position of a living being out there in the world somewhere that he's never seen before. Interesting stuff. We need to affirm that Jesus was powerful in his ministry. Not only did he know this cult was, was out there, he knew that, uh, for example, or he, he would heal people, right? We've seen this happen time and time again. He goes and he heals people at will, right? He's wielding power. 
He's wielding the power of walking on water. He has wielded the power of calming storms. He has multiplied food supernaturally. He was powerful. He is powerful. In fact, the temptations of Satan were real. We can see that Jesus is powerful because Satan says, hey, uh, it, like we're, you could jump off this high building and, uh, and the angels will catch you. But we know that he could have jumped off. He could have been saved by those angels. He was powerful to do that. So the temptations of Satan were real. He could have turned stones into bread. He was powerful. And so we know that Jesus, having never seen the donkey, nonetheless knew of its existence and its owner's willingness to give it to him and his ability to ride an unridden animal. This is all very interesting. Because, and let me just walk through it here. Donkeys and, and horses, if you know anything about horses, they have to be broken before they can be ridden. You know this? Some of you might know this. You might be familiar with horses. You can't just jump on a horse. It has to be trained. It's the same thing with donkeys. They need someone to come in and train them. And we're going to see that this donkey had never been ridden. You see this in the text. Again, uh, verse 2, on which no one has ever sat not just never ridden anywhere in particular, but never been sat on before. This gives us an inkling that this donkey was divinely appointed. And so I want us to, to see a few things here as we can just consider the donkey. <laughs> We're going to see Jesus in light of the donkey. Jesus displayed this incredible foreknowledge, but God the Father had prepared it all beforehand. You want to talk about power, let's talk about sovereignty. Okay? I'm not just talking about at will temporal miracles. I'm talking about absolute and utter sovereignty over all of creation, everything that comes to pass. How can we see this from this one little donkey? Well, we have to look back. We have to see Zechariah 9.9. Dale, if you want to pull that up, it might be helpful if you can get to it. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Okay. So we have to start at Zechariah. If you ever wanted to see the sovereignty of God over all of history, this is the place. This is one place. The donkey was prophesied hundreds of years previous. This one little donkey. And God orchestrated every single thing to make that donkey at that point, at that time. You want to talk about power? Let's talk about sovereignty. The mechanisms by which we know that God is uh, uh, sovereign over all of history are, are unknown to, uh, to us, right? We, we understand that we have responsibility. We have some degree of agency. We are not robots, okay? Some people accuse us of saying that people are robots. No, we have responsibility. We are, we are moral agents. We can make choices. And yet somehow God is sovereign over every single thing that comes to pass, Let's look in detail. The donkey had to be at the right place at the right time hundreds of years after this prophecy. 
What does it take for that donkey to get there? God had to orchestrate that that donkey existed. Okay, how does that work? Well, we can, we can go the, the flashy route here. God may have spontaneously created a donkey for that moment. He could have. I don't think that's what happened, but he could have. He had the power to do that. That's one option. The only other option that we have is that God somehow orchestrated every bit of history between Zechariah and this moment, including the donkey's parents. Like, he had to be created somehow. And so God, in his infinite power, orchestrated that these two animals would produce this offspring for this moment. We had to know that the, the donkey was healthy. God had to orchestrate the donkey's health, all right? The little bits of his endocrine system, God had to make sure that that stuff was okay, that he developed the right muscle mass to be able to carry a human being at his young age. A full-grown man, no less. He had to make sure that that donkey was dispositioned to let Jesus ride him. By nature, he wasn't trained, but guess what? God had sovereignly orchestrated that this little donkey, this little colt, was dispositioned to allow one man to ride him without training. You want to talk about power, let's talk about sovereignty. But get this, God didn't just orchestrate the life of the donkey. You want to, you want to go, oh, well, like that's, that's pretty simple, you know, animals whatever, God has power over those. No, this donkey had owners and they had to make sure that he was tied up at the right place at the right time. God orchestrated that these, these owners were going to make sure that that donkey was right there when he was needed. Look, it says this, they, they went out and, uh, and in verse five, it says, and some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? They were like, why are you stealing this donkey? Well, first of all, they weren't stealing anything. They weren't doing anything immoral. Uh, in fact, it was commonplace when a lord uh, or a king was coming in uh, to a city to, that he could requisition any animal for his use. Okay, this was common practice. But the fact that these people were asking questions, they were saying, hey, what, what are you doing with that? Implies that they knew the donkey's owners. Because if you see a couple of people untying a donkey, but you don't know whose it is, you're just gonna assume it's theirs, right? And so God didn't spontaneously create a donkey. He made sure, sovereignly orchestrated, that two individuals, three individuals, a group of individuals, one person, I don't know who, who owned this donkey, but somebody who was known in this particular area of Jerusalem would bring that donkey to that door and tie him up right there for that moment in time. You want to talk about power, talk about sovereignty. Our God is clearly powerful and sovereign in this passage. Jesus Christ is not a part of God. He is God, okay? And so when you think about the humility of Jesus and where he's at, and you think about the power that he could have wielded in that moment, there's a juxtaposition. We see that he is orchestrating all these things and yet he's willing to humble himself, become lowly for us. The reality of, of Christ's sovereignty over all things is uh, shown to us, or not shown to us, but uh, eloquently put by a man named Abraham Kuyper. 
Right? He said, there is not a square inch in the whole, in, uh, whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. It's his, all of it. Every single thing. There are small things in our lives over which we think that perhaps God is not sovereign, but he is. The smallest choices, he is sovereign over all of it. Does that mean he is actively controlling every individual thing? I don't know how that works. I don't, I don't think that we have a clear answer. I think these are two things we have to hold in tension. God is absolutely and positively in control. He is sovereign over all things that come, come to pass, and yet we make choices. But ultimately, we know that it is God's. Fill in the blank, whatever it is. The God we worship is the same God who entered Jerusalem on a sovereignly appointed donkey. This powerful God of the universe, the one who spun all things into existence, seated on a sovereignly appointed little donkey. Look, this, is, this should blow your mind. If it doesn't, I... I Maybe I'm just not doing a good job of communicating this. It should blow your mind that the sovereign God of the universe would sit on a borrowed donkey. It, it, it's it's mind-blowing. Look, he, it, Jesus could have, because we've seen him do all sorts of insane miracles, right? He could have spontaneously created a Tesla Model S Plaid, put it in hyperdrive and enter Jerusalem doing zero to 60 in under two seconds. He could have. It, the, like you laugh at that, but that is just as crazy as the fact that he was sitting on a donkey Walk, just going into Jerusalem. It's, it's insurmountably crazy, right? It seems just nuts that God in all of his infinite nature that he would come and sit on a donkey and Go to Jerusalem in this humble way for our sakes. But he, he did. He entered humbly on the back of this borrowed donkey using the disciples' cloaks as a saddle. And that's, that's the contrast. That's the contrast. You see the sovereignty of God, the power of God, the creative power of God. You see the, the all-knowing, the omniscience of God and then you see Jesus on a donkey. This sort of thing, um, it tends to break my heart when I think about it. Uh, and maybe, I don't know if this is the right response to this, but when I think about God and all of his infiniteness and all of his perfection, being absolutely perfect by himself, without anything, that that he would come and, and not ride in in a Tesla in first century Jerusalem, but ride on the back of a donkey in a victory march that was to his death. It, it tweaks me a bit to think about that. Like, why would he do that for me? Why would he do that for any of us? He was fine in and of himself. He never had to even create any of this, but he did. And then he came into Jerusalem on a donkey on the way to his death. That he would choose to die for me, treated like trash, is just, it's hard to imagine. 
And I, I can't imagine myself being so valuable that he would do that even just for me. Uh, every time I think about it, I have, to, I have to ultimately admit that I don't get it. Maybe this is something you don't expect to hear from a pastor in a pulpit, well, in front of a pub table. You don't expect to hear that, but like, I don't, I still don't get it. Like, I understand cognitively that God does all this for his own glory, but that stands in direct tension to what I would do if I was fine. Like, it says that for the glory set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. And like I said, I affirm this, but it makes me uncomfortable that this infinite God of the universe would do this. I mean, when someone has no reason to give you something incredible and yet does so without prompting, without asking, without asking for any real return, it makes you feel uncomfortable, right? Like, have you ever had someone just give you something out of the goodness of their hearts, knowing that you could never repay them? Have you ever had that happen to you? Uh, I, I, it, it just blows my mind. In fact, it's an insult in those moments to say, I'll pay you back. Because you know you can't. You can never even attempt to pay that person's ba person back. And it is insulting to assume that you might be able to. Have you ever received a gift like that? I know I have. I know I have. Your salvation is bigger than any of that. My response to that is simply a, a broken, humble, and heartfelt thank you. It's the best you can do in those moments, right? When you receive stuff like that, when you receive such an amazing gift that you could never deserve and never pay back, all you can do is just thank you. I, I don't have words. And sometimes that's how we should approach the throne of God. Sometimes we should remember the cost the price that he paid, not, not for our, not, not, not because he had to, but just for our good, just for us, out of love for us. And sometimes these thank yous can be quiet and reserved. They can be loud and joyful. But if we ever stop being overwhelmed by the grace of God in Jesus Christ, we're in the wrong place. We need to reconsider who he is. And so as we continue on through the passage, starting in verse eight, it says, and many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the, one, or is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. They were worshiping. They're taking everything that they had and saying, this is, this is not repayment. This is nothing. They were just worshiping. So I think that they felt maybe just a fraction of what I hope you feel today. They saw that a savior had come. They didn't care what he was writing, only that the victory march of the king of the Jews had begun. And make no mistake, this was a victory march. This is commonplace in the ancient world. You go out to conquer, you come back to fanfare, right? It was a victory march. They thought he was there to deliver them 
from the Romans. They were saying, Hosanna. This is originally a, uh, a cry of, out of desperation for deliverance. Hosanna was, was not a praise word. It was just, it was a on my knees broken, deliver me. That's what Hosanna meant. But in this context, it, and, and around this point, that word started to morph, started to change. It became a praise word. The Lord is going to deliver us, praise God. And so we see this like thought toward deliverance, but also this already not yet reality. Like the king is coming in. We are celebrating beforehand because it is so sure that he is going to do all that we expect him to do. See, the people were, were certain that Jesus would save them, not from their sins, but from Roman oppression. And they were like, the king has come. He's going to overthrow the entire government. He's going to save us from Roman oppression. Hosanna, the, the, the uh, kingdom of our father David has come. Hosanna. They didn't quite get it. See, their king wasn't there to save them from the Romans. He was there to save them from their sins. But think about this. Again, contrast between power and humility. Think about what kind of war Jesus could have stirred up if he'd wanted to get rid of the Romans. You got a bunch of the people from Jerusalem coming out of their houses, lined up along the streets. You want to start an insurrection, now's the time. Get your swords, guys, let's go, right? You want to overthrow a government? And you've got that, like he, he had multitudes, quote, multitudes following him around already. And now you've got the people of Jerusalem just crying out, you know, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. What kind of a war could he have stirred up? People in Jerusalem were treating him as a king already. And they were doing this in direct resistance to the Roman government, right? It's not like these people were free to do this. No, not at all. They were under Roman oppression. They were under Roman rule. They knew that they were doing this at a risk, but they were so sure that Jesus was going to come and stir them up for an insurrection and they were gonna cast out the Romans. Think of what Jesus could have done if he had wanted to do that precise thing. I mean, just the raw people power, he could have done it. Lay aside all of the things, thinking about his, his supernatural power. Just think about the people power he could have brought to bear on the government there in Jerusalem. He could have taken it over. But that's not what he was there for. They could have set him up as a king. I mean, people had become more and more certain that Jesus was the fulfillment to all these prophecies, but he wasn't there to set up an earthly kingdom. He was on a victory march to the grave. A victory march to the grave. This victory march was a pre-declaration of that victory which Christ won for us on the cross. The people didn't know it yet, but we do. We know what this was for. He was so, this is, this is crazy, Jesus was so certain and praise God for that because like Jesus was both God and man. He was so certain that this is exactly what was going to happen that he said, okay, they might not quite get it yet, but this victory march is appropriate. I'm going to fight a war. I'm going to win. I'm going to my death, but I am going to win. 
And so we see in this passage, we, we see this as a high point in the narrative because it is a victory march for what he accomplished on the cross. We see the humility that he had to not stir up a war with all of the power he could have wielded, but he went to his death for us. And so this victory march doesn't call attention to the, the incredible uh, fanfare and all of the, like maybe the, the amazing chariot that he could have ridden in or whatever else. No, it was simply drawing attention to what Jesus was about to do. See, the king that they were worshiping in this time was the humble king who came not to overthrow Rome, but to save them from their sins. He was not there to make war in, in a physical form, but he was there to make war against death. And in order to do that, he would have to die. And this entrance into Jerusalem is the beginning of the end of Jesus' ministry. But Jesus didn't stop at the gates of Jerusalem. He didn't stop at the gates of Jerusalem. Verse 11. And he entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, it was, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Jesus wasn't headed for Jerusalem in general. He was headed for the temple. Whereas the victory march of a king might end at his palace, Jesus ended his victory march at his temple. His temple. Malachi 3.1 prophesied this. We see the part before this is, or the, the first half of this is about John and the latter half is about Jesus. It says, behold, I will send my messenger, this is John, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Jesus arrived at his temple, riding a borrowed donkey and using his disciples' cloaks as a saddle. Think about that. If you've ever needed an illustration of our God to remind you who he is, perhaps this is one you should file away. Jesus standing next to a borrowed donkey looking at the temple. His temple. I'm blown away by the contrast. The temple was the place of the presence of God for Old Testament Israel. This was the place where you people went to meet with God in a more face-to-face -face sort of way. This was where God saw fit to manifest his presence. And here Jesus is standing next to the borrowed donkey at his temple, returning to the place of his presence. You want to see a juxtaposition of how humble our God is versus how powerful and worthy of our worship he is? That's it. We should never get the idea, though, that just because Jesus is willing to come to us and live a limited human life and die for us and intercede for us at the right hand of God the Father, we should never get the idea that just because he does all of these things that he doesn't deserve our worship as the God of the universe. He stands in the temple 
Likewise, we should never get the idea that because he is God of the universe that we can't come to him just as we are, humble and weak. We're broken people, but he knows what that's like. He humbled himself. He was one of us. He knows. I admit this is a tension we have to hold in our minds as Christians. We have to hold that tension of God is humble and willing to meet us where, he is, where we are. He condescends to us. And yet he is so far above us and so powerful and so amazing. We have to hold this tension. As I close today, I, I want you to consider who your God is. For just a moment, I want you to savor your relationship with God, this God who is all-powerful but humble. He is a God who makes his dwelling place, not even in temples any longer, but in the hearts of sinful man who he has redeemed. This is a God who loved you, each and every one of you, if you were in Christ, enough to send his only son to ride on a sovereignly appointed donkey in a victory march to his death, not for his sins, but for ours. There is a satisfaction, a sweetness to knowing our humble, all-powerful God. And that relationship is the most precious thing that you can possess. If you, if you don't know him today, if you're not in a relationship with Jesus Christ, then today's the day. The gospel is this, that Jesus came and lived a humble life, a human life, and died a sinner's death on the cross so that people like you and I who are sinners in light of a holy God can be redeemed by his sacrifice. We can be saved from eternal punishment. If you simply believe in him, if you trust in him today and turn from your sins, that's enough. That's enough. You might think I'm not good enough today. In fact, there might be Christians in this room today who are thinking I'm not good enough. You're right, but he is. Trust him today. If you do know him today, trust him and taste the sweetness of knowing his love and his grace and his humbleness and his holiness all at once to truly know him and savor that. And I hope today that as you go from here, you're reminded of God's power, of his humility and his love and his grace toward you and that at that point, from that position, of knowing him and knowing the, the, the grace that he's poured out at the cross of Jesus Christ, that knowing that then you can go and do, but only from there, only from a position of thanksgiving, only from a position of rest in Christ, only from that point can we truly glorify God. It's my hope that today you'll think of on this and that it will continue with you throughout the week. Think of our humble, all-powerful God, our humble, sovereign God.
Thanks for listening to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. For more information about Mosaic, including location and service times, or to support us financially, visit our website at mosaicrva.com or find us on Instagram and Facebook at Mosaic Church RVA. Remember, it's not about us, it's all about Jesus.